Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Turkey is called snap elections. The outcome isn't very much in doubt. We'll think about the democratic strongman model in Turkey. Jose Antonio Vargas is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, an undocumented immigrant, and now a festival organizer. We'll find out about his Define American Film Festival. And in our global activism segment, we'll hear about a rapidly growing effort to help sex trafficking victims. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Turkey announced early elections yesterday. The next government will lock in the changes that were voted on last year that moved Turkey from a parliamentary system to a presidential system. With me is Sinan Arensu. He's a postdoctoral fellow at Northwestern University's Buffett Institute for Global Studies. His work focuses on political power and dissent in 21st century Turkey. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Hello, Jerome. Thanks for having me. You know, I think a lot of people are looking at this and saying, well, why call early elections now? Why did this happen? Why not wait until the fall? Yeah, sure. Uh, Fall of 2019, right? Uh, Well, probably they thought that this is going to be the best time for the uh, for having the election, and there is no there won't be any better time between now and November 2019 for at least four reasons. I think one of them is they want to the government and its ally want to capitalize on this recent military campaign in northern Syria uh, that's really generated a lot of nationalistic sentiment and approval around the government. So they, they want to capitalize on that. And second reason is uh, there will be another scheduled local elections this time between now and the fall 2019, the, uh, the, the original date of the election. And the current alliance between the government, Erdogan, and uh, Nationalist Movement Party is not a very strong one, and they may uh, face a surprising upset in the uh, that uh, local municipal elections. They they just also wanted to avoid them, avoid that possible outcome. And there is another reason, obviously, is to catch the opposition off guard, unprepared. And one aspect of it, the um, the Kurdish party, the the um, People's Democratic Party, half of its administrators are in uh, uh, jail or under custody currently. Uh, uh, that's one thing. They're heavily uh, criminalized, and uh, a snap election won't provide them to opportunity to get back on their feet. And also there is this new party on the central right. It's called E-Party, Good Party. Uh, There is this possibility that they might be even eligible to run in this election. So the opposition's uh, kind of a mess right now. They they uh, They don't have it together to run in 60 days. Well, the opposite, yeah, definitely. They have the numbers, perhaps. I mean, the t- Turkish electorate seems to be uh, split 50-50 on both sides. 
the last uh, referendum last year showed us that that was a very slim victory for Erdogan. But the thing is, there is no unitary front for the opposition. There are um, secularist modernists on the one hand. On the other hand, there is the Kurdish political movement inside that uh, uh, 50%. And there is nationalists and also some uh, small portion uh, with background in political Islam. So it, it's going to be really difficult to bring them together and play with the mathematics of this two-round election. I mean, they need to, perhaps they each need to uh, show candidates that would appeal everybody's taste, but there will be that the second round will, they need to talk, think about the second round as well. How much does the opposition suffer from just straight on difficulty campaigning and oppression? Uh, do they have access to the media? Can they have rallies? Uh, a lot of people are still locked up in Turkey. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Turkey has been governed under emergency rules since the coup attempt of 2016, July 2016. And the government actually renewed that uh, emergency uh, decree for the seventh time just an hour before they announce the SNAP election. And under emergency rules, the government appointed uh, governors, local governors. They have uh, utmost control in the, uh, in, in the provincial cities. And it's really difficult for political parties even to find venues to hold uh, uh, meetings and rallies, uh, sometimes demonstrations often. The demonstrations are banned uh, uh, abruptly all of a sudden just by the decree of the governors. And recently, even uh, uh, certain slogans uh, and chants are being uh, uh, banned by these uh, government administrators. Well, let's talk for a second about um, President Erdogan and his political party and movement. Uh, on the one hand, this seems like he's, he's you know, really trying to lock in permanent powers and increase his powers mm -hmm. again, solidify his powers. He's been in power already for 15 years. But his party, in a way, and his political movement has, has changed radically. He's shed all sorts of allies over the years. He's got a new ally that doesn't look so comfortable. Uh, did, did, is there a... Um, a problem with within this uh, great solidification and march of a strongman. Yeah, there is definitely a crisis. I mean, uh, uh, it, perhaps, and it is the case, uh, Mr. Erdogan has the numbers, but uh, the appeal of his political message diminished significantly. Uh, his party himself and the uh, the political moment that he's coming from the the political Islam or conservative uh, uh, right, perhaps uh, however you put it, doesn't have the appeal that they used to uh, um, in mid two thousands, late two thousands. Perhaps uh, they they are they're no longer able to deliver their fundamental promises. Uh, obviously, prosperity and political f expansion of political freedoms. So that is why he is looking for new alliances. Erdogan is looking for new alliances. And just a few months ago, they passed a new law that would enable establishing uh, official political alliances uh, in, in elections. That, that was something that didn't exist uh, 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 before. And 
Erdogan is no longer able to secure 50% vote. But the problem is the opposition uh, is not a unitary opposition. They might have the numbers, but they it's it's difficult to it's diff- especially for a presidential election. It's difficult for them to gather around. I'm talking with Sinan Arensu. He's a postdoctoral fellow at the Northwestern University Buffett Institute for Global Studies. And we're talking about Turkey. There are uh, snap elections, were called yesterday. They're going to happen towards the end of June. And it'll transition Turkey from a parliamentary system to a presidential system <laughs> at that time. And, you know, I think a lot of us are looking around the world these days at all the different strongmen out there. And um, people are, you know, Viktor Orban is is there in, in Hungary, uh, Vladimir Putin, all these people who run elections, who win elections, and just kind of stampede all the institutions. Uh, Erdogan kind of uh, seems to have this this thing down. How how does he do this? What is the Turkish model of doing this? <laughs> well, that's a hard, difficult question. I, I'm not sure if I can answer it and provide a satisfactory answer, but I can tell you this. It's true that there is a global moment, a global moment of crisis in democratic politics, and Erdogan is able to capitalize on that. I mean, uh, I think without that, I don't think he would take in the steps that he did. It would have been much risky. There is this vacuum. These new actors are... Uh, playing and and trying to take advantage of certainly and there is this uh, obvious disappearance of the political left and its inability to answer the needs and demands of ordinary working class people it, it's uh, the way he's governing he has um you mentioned the the war that he's become more involved with in uh, Syria, and he's moved in on, on some of the Turkish forces there, and this is popular. Is that a ingredient in, in his, is that part of why he does this? Is he, did he go in there for really good strategic <clears throat> reasons, or did he go in there for political reasons, for the spectacle, for the nationalism, for, for, the, for the juice? Well, part of it is definitely for the juice, for the spectacle, for gaining, uh, solidifying its uh, conservative nationalist base before the election. But part of it is more as a deeper strategical reason to it. I mean, uh, let's think about the coup attempt of July 2016. I mean, we are talking about an army that was split and practically fought against each other for like two days or so. I mean, this is something serious. And we are talking about, if I'm not wrong, the second largest army of NATO. And there is this huge crisis there too, a lack of confidence probably, and probably a search for a new identity. And and I think Erdogan is successful in grasping that moment of crisis by launching this kind of a military offense in the uh, southern Syria. So, I mean, that's that's a part of the new alliances, the new alliance that he's looking for. It's not just, we are not just talking about a, a merely political party type of alliance between Erdogan, his party, and the National Movement Party, but also probably an alliance uh, that would include the hardliners across the spectrum, but within within the army as well. How should the U.S. approach Turkey these days? Uh, Turkey's ha- got, um, 
you know, a relationship with Russia and Iran where they're trying to work on the end of the Syrian war and they seem to be um, connecting themselves more with uh, other players that are non-NATO in nature. Uh, does the, how does the U.S. play this? Well, it's a difficult question, well, maybe the most difficult question, and I'm getting this question uh, uh, a lot, but I don't know how to address it because, uh, I mean, if you are concerned with, the, uh, uh, with encouraging, fostering democratic actors in Turkey, I'm not sure the current administration in the U.S. Uh, has the moral high ground to do that, and there is, it's likely, if, if, if it wants to do that, it would likely to backfire, would be A, seen as a anti, uh, imp, an imperialist intervention, a type of uh, U.S. interventionism. And on the other hand, President Trump's uh, uh, is not famous with uh, his he's not popular. Ability. He's not popular, but he's he's not known as a as a Democrat. Yeah. So the opposition is going to have to make a lot of moves here and before the election, and we'll see what they can do. They they've um, it it seems like a tough road to hoe. How do they how do they address the needs of the Turkish people right now? Well, yeah, there there are several obstacles. I mean, in in, in that they need to uh, uh, that there's a mountain for them to climb in the next two months. They need to come up with uh, each one of them. Each oppositional political parties need to come up with six hundred uh, uh, candidates for the parliament because we are talking about a dual election, presidential election, and the election of a new parliament. So they need to come up with uh, six. Thousand uh, parliamentary candidates for every seat in the parliament. That's one uh, uh, job that they need to do. But on the other hand, they need to come up obviously with uh, uh, presidential candidates. But perhaps more importantly, I mean, since they need to build a momentum for this dual election, they need to come up with a, a attractive uh, political platform. And that's what kind of a platform would it be? Because a year ago, these opposition parties rejected the uh, uh, referendum and said no to the presidential system. So, will their candidates promise restoration of the parliamentary system, or will they also promise jobs, prosperity, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, like any party should? Sinan Arensu is a postdoctoral fellow at Northwestern University's Buffett, Internet, uh, Buffett Institute for Global Studies. Thanks for joining us and talking about the Turkish elections. Early elections were called yesterday. They'll be at the end of June, and the new government locks in uh, Turkey as a presidential system. Thanks a lot for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the Define American Film Fest. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. 
There's a different kind of film fest coming to town. It's the Define America Film Fest, and it starts on Friday the 20th and runs through the weekend. And with me is the founder of Define American, and it's Jose Antonio Vargas. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, an Emmy-nominated filmmaker, an immigration activist, and you might remember him even from 2011. His New York Times Magazine essay, My Life as an Undocumented Immigrant, caused quite a stir. Uh, Nice to see you, Jose Antonio Vargas. Thank you so much for having me here. What were you doing here with the Define American Film Fest? Why do you want to define American? Because I cannot think of a more quintessential question following the Obama years through this Trump era than how do you define American? And I think with an issue as political and as partisan as immigration, I find storytelling to be really the central way of understanding what this issue is about and how immigration is related to all of these other issues. So for us at Define American, it's our way of bringing people together, right? Like if you look at the entire slate of films, comedy, conversations, panelists, people talk a lot about intersectionality, but I think how do you put that into work? So this is how we put that into work. So the films aren't just straight up about immigration. They're about Syria. They're about the United yeah. States. They're about uh, There's about things. Syrian refugees. We have a secret film that actually has not premiered yet that we're showing <laughs> <laughs> that we're showing on Saturday, and it's about mass incarceration and the Black Lives Matter movement. So that's like a secret thing. So people, please check it out. And then we have an entire panel on like the women's rights movement. Why, and, why is it secret? Why can't we let the, ah, let the lid out? Because it's a premiere. It's a premiere. And so when you check out defineamerican.com and you get a festival pass, then you will get all the information. (laughs) All right. Your original idea to do this, why did you think a film festival could do this, that you Uh, could fill a void and and get in there with a film fest and do storytelling about the movement of peoples? You know, an immigrant will tell you that television and films is like the greatest cultural translator. And when I was a kid, I think I probably watched every episode of Roger Ebert and Siskel Ebert, right? And I think Roger Ebert said that films are an empathy machine. Right. So films are an empathy machine. And I'm talking here as an undocumented Filipino immigrant who has been traveling all across this country. I cannot think of a more misunderstood issue than immigration. So for us, this film festival is not only about entertaining people, but actually informing people. And then more important, bringing people together. Right. And given that last year we had this in Charlotte, North Carolina, this film festival um, at an African-American museum. So we had this really great kind of diverse representative group of people come. Our goal this year in Chicago is how do we get like the Latino community, the Asian community, the black community, of course. Of course, all white people are invited. Everybody's invited. So how do we get people to kind of share space with each other? Well, it'll be interesting to see. The, um, <laughs> yes, it will be very yeah. interesting to see. What about your own status these days? You were brought here as a child and, yeah, did not, and you thought you were a legal person. And found out you weren't later. Are you a DACA person? You're, no, you're ridiculously I, um, old for that. I'm but. ridiculous. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, yeah, I actually missed the DACA deadline by three months. Really? I missed the age cut up by three months. Um, uh-huh. So, no, I don't have DACA. I'm undocumented. I don't have any protection in that way. And look, Define American to me is you know this organization that in many ways was my way of saying that Mine is only one story, right? In Chicago, what, 180,000 estimated undocumented population? In the whole state, right, about 500,000 undocumented people in the state of Illinois. 
and it's not just undocumented Latinos. It's undocumented Asians, undocumented black immigrants. I meet so many undocumented white people. At Starbucks, usually, who like, you know, say hi and said, hey, I saw you on Bill Maher or something. And I'm sorry that I'm not able to come out as undocumented. Right. So for us, this is our way, again, of insisting on the complexity of this issue. And doing that is through these stories and through films, right? And we're showing lots of really good, really compelling films. I'm talking with Jose Antonio Vargas. He is the man behind the Define American Film Fest, which is coming to town on Friday and running through Sunday. Uh, One of the films, we have one of the filmmakers that really drives home the complexity of moving people around. And it's Robert Greene. His film is Bisbee 17, and it's showing Saturday afternoon at 1. Thanks for joining us, Robert Greene. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a good thing for us to be a part of this festival. Thank you so much. You know, your film deals with a place called Bisbee, Arizona. Most people probably have never heard of it in the first place. And it has a really interesting piece of history, which you got involved with. Tell us what it is. So Bisbee is a border town. It's seven miles from the border, very southern Arizona in the mountains near Mexico border. And a hundred years ago, uh, 1,200 striking miners, roughly half of them Mexican, but many Eastern Europeans, basically anyone who wasn't Anglo, uh, were rounded up by gunpoint and put on cattle cars and shipped in the middle of the New Mexico desert and just left there, basically. They were striking for higher wages and better working conditions and no discrimination. It used to be that in a a mining town like Bisbee 100 years ago, Mexicans could not work underground, which means they were paid significantly less money and they were striking to have the right to not be discriminated against, among other things. And the mining companies sort of conspired with the local sheriff and other leaders in the community and, and rounded them up and got them out of town. This was just a couple of months into World War One, And if you want to talk about define America, this is one of the most sensitive sort of times in our history. It became necessary in order to, you know, sort of get people up for the war. Americans were totally against World War One for many years. They were not for it. Uh, but to get them to sort of think in a patriotic sense, you you almost had to do things like this to get people uh, riled up. In and, who is and who is an American? And the interesting thing that you get to film here is the town decides to have a hundredth anniversary commemoration of this and reenact the whole thing. And they load people onto cattle cars and they get actors and they they act themselves, all the townspeople, and they decide to do this reenactment, which is a wild thing. We collaborated with them to create that reenactment. And for us, the important thing to know about the film is that it's called Bisbee 17. It absolutely takes place in 2017, not 1917. This isn't a reenactment where you're meant to be lost in the past. The film really is you're following characters and you're getting their perspectives. And we really document all sort of sides of this debate. And it's probably hard to imagine for most of your listeners that it is still a debate. Because uh, there are old mining families in town that still think, hey, that roundup was justified. And, and we hear from them, as well as people who are compared to the Holocaust, which might be a little bit much, but that tells you the sort of passion, how the passion sort of flares up in town. And so you meet people and then you see them reenact this day, this sort of infamous day that happened 100 years ago on the 100th anniversary. And it becomes quite emotional, cathartic, strange, surreal, uh, in more of a seance than it is a a reenactment, I'd say. We've got a clip from Bisbee 17. This is uh, one of the women. She's an older woman, and her grandfather and her uncle were involved in the Bisbee deportations. 
My name is Sue Ray. I was born and raised in Bisbee, Arizona. My grandfather came as a miner in 1915, and his brother came shortly after. My grandfather was deputized by Sheriff Wheeler, and he went and arrested his own brother and put him on the train and deported him into New Mexico. I was really shocked when I first heard that Grandpa arrested Uncle Archie. They had to go with what their conscience told them. He felt he was responsible along with those that worked for the company to make certain that we were protected from becoming taken over by the the socialists, by communism, that he had to go and arrest his own brother and send his brother out into the unknown world, not realizing that they would never see each other again. That's a clip from Bisbee 17. It's showing on Saturday at 1 p.m. at the Define American Film Festival. Robert Green, the filmmaker, is with us, and Jose Antonio Vargas, the founder of the film festival, is with us. Robert, it's such an interesting thing to watch this story unfold with so many reverberations and on the personal level that woman, you know, obviously her family was torn apart by this. Uh, there's all sorts of implications about capitalism and the media and divisiveness. It almost seems a lot like the debates we have today about everything. People say, well, we're a very divided country. Man, were we a divided country then? Different media the whole bit. Well, what's interesting about that is that her name's Sue Ray and her sons, Steve and Mel, end up playing their great-grandfather and great-uncle. And embedded in so many of her words are just all these assumptions about what's right and wrong. When she says, you know, being taken over by the communist, by socialism, she's talking about the industrial workers of the world, which was the most radical union that ever came to the United States. But they weren't communists or socialists. They had some things very much in common with socialism, but they weren't, you know, by the book socialist. She's speaking about an idea that comes more from the 1950s. Later, you hear someone who's on the side of the bosses, basically, and he says something along the lines of, well, this is why I was against the Vietnam War protests. And the point that we're really trying to make with telling these stories the way we're telling them is that these divisions, you know, they go back in history, certainly beyond 100 years. They're absolutely present today. There's one scene where someone's being pulled out of a bodega We finished editing that scene on the day that over 100 7-Elevens were raided across the country, you know, and people were pulled out of their work in the same way that the scene that we staged happened, and it couldn't be more present and real. But these conflicts, this is a 20th century story. It's a 19th century story. It's a 21st century story. That's the real important thing here is that these divisions run deep, and we have to understand that. We have to understand that the divisions run this country, in fact, and people exploit these divisions to get what they want. In this case, it helped to get Americans to want to go to war. It was to save this very, very profitable mine from being shut down by this radical union. And that all fed into this basic idea of capitalism being the right and good thing. These are long conflicts in this country. So our film's really about that and how the language that people use uh, gets tied into conflicts that go way beyond them and their personal stories. Now, the people who got shipped out there to the desert to die, I assume, 
Uh, they didn't actually die. They got kind of rescued by people and put into a camp that was meant for refugees from the Mexican War or something. The story is ridiculous. So the real villain is a guy named John C. Greenway, who was a rough rider and was the head of one of the mining companies. He's portrayed in the film uh, by an actor named James West. And John Greenway's big idea was, hey, these are anti-American traitors. Let's bring them to an army base in the middle of uh, New Mexico. There was an army base in Columbus, New Mexico. And basically, that was his big idea. They shipped them out there. The army said, these are kidnapped people. You can't do that. And so they just backed up 45 minutes and kicked them in the desert and took off. Uh, we say in the film, left to die, because that's what it was. The truth is, is that a lot of people came in and immediately tried to help them. There was a camp that was formed. And the irony is they were sort of kicked out of town because they were anti-war activists. Well, once they were fired from the company for striking, they no longer had the protections of working for an essential industry, which is what a copper miner was, an essential industry. So they could be drafted. So many of them went to the war. So they ended up being labeled as anti-war agitators, and many of them ended up being saved, but then shipped off to war. And I think you know we can guess what their fate was after that. But there's a great number of stories that came out of who was deported and where they went. I would encourage everyone – we have a historian in the film named Mike Anderson who's doing a lot of great work and sort of following up on what happened to the people who were deported. The truth is they were not – uh, wobbly agitators, as they were called. They were almost, to a man, they were people just trying to get better wages. We're talking about the film Bisbee 17. It's showing Saturday at 1 at the Define American Film Fest, which is coming on Friday. And, Jose, one of the things about the film fest is you do a lot of talk afterwards. Yeah. I got a great panel discussion after this film. Yeah, so Maria Hinojosa is the great journalist. Maria Hinojosa is moderating a conversation after we show this film about the connection between what happened during 1917 and what's happening now. And, you know, the mass detention and deportation machine that's been in play in this country since really the Clinton era, right? This has been a bipartisan mess, immigration. For us, you can't really talk about the present without looking at the past. And so that's why we thought this film was perfect to kind of do that. But again, we can't just talk about immigration in the city of Chicago and not connect it to all these other issues, right? And so we're hoping that we're going to attract a really diverse representative group of people who are going to see how their stories are reflective of each other's. Where do people get more information about the Define American Film Fest? Defineamerican.com. Everything you possibly want to know is on that website, defineamerican.com. So the mystery film stuff, the, the comedy <laughs> night, the comedy vir night. virtual reality we films. Have, yeah, we have virtual reality film. We have an entire installation on the census, right? There's 17 boxes in the U.S. census. Like when you check a box asking you what your identity is, and we filmed every single box. And so we have an installation about that. We have an exhibit all about undocumented immigrants and like showing the resilience of undocumented immigrants in this country. So really for me, this festival brings forth all these stories and connects all these identities together. The Define American Film Festival is at the venue 610 at 610 South Michigan Avenue. The Spurtis Museum is there. And uh, it's Friday and runs through Sunday, the 22nd. And thanks a lot for joining us, Jose Antonio Vargas, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, documentary filmmaker, and the founder of the Define American Film Fest. And thanks a lot to Robert Green, documentary filmmaker. His film Bisbee 17 shows Saturday at 1. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
Coming up after the break, we'll have our global activism segment where we hear about people who make the world a better place. And today we hear about a rapidly growing effort to help sex trafficking victims. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism segment, where we feature people who make the world a better place. And we're going to visit again with Sale of Freedom. It's a Sarasota-based Florida nonprofit that rescues sex trafficking victims in the U.S. Sela is the Hebrew word for to pause and reflect. And the president and CEO of Sale of Freedom is Elizabeth Fisher. Thanks for joining us again. Great to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Jerome. Explain how you got into this and why you got involved with victims of sex trafficking. I will. And I'd love to share also the bio is even outdated now because SAIL is a national organization. You call yourself SAIL Away Foundation? Now we have a whole other arm of it. That's the SAIL Away Foundation. We're national and we have another arm that's going to be launching specifically just out of Chicago. But I got involved in it because of the crazy need, looking to find an unserved part of the population. We were just doing a charity event and wanted to find who was the most unmet need that we could raise money for. And we were told our local kids are being sold for sex. And out of that discovery and realizing back then in 2010, there was no one doing anything about it. We came on the forefront and just started creating and partnering and learning all the best practices and turned into what we are now six, seven years later. What happens to a normal person who's involved in sex trafficking and they come and get involved with sale of fear and how? Why does that work? Well, you know, it's interesting. I'm just coming from Cook County Jail. We're working on something with Cook County and partnering with Sheriff Dart and his team over there. What's fun is when we first started talking with them a couple of years ago, they're like, well, we don't have that many in this population. And we're like, well, I think you do. They might be misidentified, but there's quite a lot. Chicago's the top five market for sex trafficking in the entire country of our own children. What we do now, one of the pathways is we lead groups in the jail. So as girls come in with charges maybe related to this, they haven't firmly been identified. Are they really trafficking victims? Because no one comes along and says, I'm a trafficking victim. Please help me. They're all a journey of a little girl that something happened along the way. There was sexual abuse when she was little. There was an abuse. There was things that caused her to run away from things or run towards things to look for escape. And they led to one bad choice after another and into what she thought was probably just a boyfriend who sells her for sex, but she's only been used for sex. And then she finds herself on this pathway into jail or getting in trouble other ways, being sold for sex. So if you're there at Cook County and you meet someone with that description, what happens next? Well, I just left over there when we were leading one of our Sailor Freedom support groups. So they now have a whole pod committed to this population because they've been identified that strongly. And finally, now they have major numbers that are showing up that this is what they're seeing. And we lead groups there once a week, and they're identity groups, and they're basically helping the girls to realize this is not who you are, this is not your identity, Um, there's more. There was a story before this story. And we start helping them put the pieces together of, oh my gosh, all this stuff happened to me, and then now what do I do? Because they don't even know 
how to get out of it. So we give them the options to come into our housing programs or to come into our mentorship outreach programs where they walk alongside us. And we give them back all the pieces that they had stolen along the way. So it's a touch point. It takes seven to eight times of touching a girl like this for her to even realize and have the light bulb go off that she does need help. So a lot of times girls will check into a sale of freedom house and it'll be different. It'll be, they'll leave. They'll, oh, they won't, yeah. they'll come back. They'll go. We, we have two homes in every market, every place that we have our program. It consists of two houses because one house is simply that. It's just an assessment home where the girls will come and Sela means rest, pause, reflect. They'll get there. They'll start to learn. They'll start going to more of these identity classes, realize, oh, my gosh, something happened to me. Oh, my gosh, I got some trauma therapy. Oh, my gosh, I'm learning that I could be okay. And then almost all of them the first time through will be like, now I could go save him. I could help him. Because in a way, many of them think they're in love with the man that's been trafficking them. And they want to run back and help him with all their health they gained. (laughs) I'm talking with Elizabeth Fisher. She is president and CEO of Sale of Freedom, and we're talking about helping victims of sex trafficking. So uh, they come back repeatedly. How do you know when is the product finished? When is the product finished? I don't know. When is your kid finished? You know, (laughs) (laughs) when are we finished? Um, I don't know that anyone's ever finished, but what you can measure is where they are. The measurements and the outcomes that we look at are they typically all come in without a GED. Most of them have an education, fifth grade, sixth grade, because their trauma was so severe when they were younger and they ran to the streets. So 100% of our girls in our program will get their GED. And then 75% of those who are in our program and graduate our program will be in college and not return to the streets. And when they're with us, 99% stay on an education path during that time. 75% stay in it upon graduation. So you've seen young women go through this and come out the other end. They definitely do, and they're amazing. Tell us about one of them. Well, let's see. We have one young lady that she was textbook. You know, you always hear this stuff, and you want to believe it's not the story for everybody. But she actually went through not only on the streets, but she then ended up on Backpage, and she ended up in a brothel. And it all started with her with, you know, abuse, not realizing it, just shades of gray. Ended up even having a sugar daddy along the way, which is another hot topic these days. We could talk about that sometime. But she finally, finally came to Sayla Freedom after we chased her. We pursued her because we saw her in and out of the legal system and trouble for two years. It took two years of meeting, talking to her, asking her, can we help you? Two years for her to say yes. She had gotten pregnant twice along the way. The traffickers used their kids as leverage, so she lost both of her children. And when she finally came to us and finally, finally stayed, and when she made it to graduation, one of her sons was there. And he said, I've never before been able to look at my mom and say I'm proud of her because he heard her give a graduation speech. And she came out the other side. First, she went to professional school to be a nail tech, which got a beautiful job at a high-end salon doing beautiful work. But then she, with that confidence, believing she could, went back to college. And she's in college right now in a relationship with both of her sons. Wow, that's great. What about sugar daddies? I, we don't. Is this, why is this a topic? Why is this? why is it a topic? Because I think what's happening, and one of the passions, and why we're creating the larger foundation with the Sail Away Foundation, is that exploitation and all these pathways that lead to trafficking are sort of things that we turn a blind eye to and think, oh, well, that's benign and that's okay and that's not really. But 
there are thousands and thousands of college students. There's websites now that are dedicated to these girls finding a sugar daddy. So a girl that maybe doesn't have enough money to get herself through college, or maybe she wants to go to college but not work and have all the perks and a nice purse and good shoes. And there are men that place ads. So like for the girls that are in college in cities like Chicago and New York, wealthy men in their 30s, 40s, 50s, our girls have had them in their 60s when they're 18, 19, 20, and the men make an arrangement. How much do you need a week? Well, that's going to be one hour with me. And they typically will start out saying, it doesn't have to be sexual. It's just going to be, you know, keeping me company. And it's like the shades of gray that progress and the girls will tell us, you know what? I could see now in hindsight, that was what opened up me to this whole trafficking where I kept saying yes. One girl, the man started insisting upon it. She went to him to help her figure out how to get back with some of these situations in her life that she had had trouble with. She ended up going even further down the pipeline because of their self-esteem. So many of our young girls are doing this and we're not even aware. Is there anything illegal about these sugar daddy websites or what? Nothing. I mean, it's as shady and as scary as um, Backpage, how we just shut down Backpage. For a while there, people were like, oh, well, these girls are online. They must want to be purchased. And it's a victimless crime. If they're there, we're just giving them money. And lo and behold, we've shut it down because all of those girls were trafficked on the street, trafficked online. Same thing with Sugar Daddy. Right now, everyone's like, oh, it's great. The men are lonely. The girls need money. It's an arrangement. And one of them's called Arrange. I think it's called Arrangement.com. Do the girls end up in a more traumatizing relationship from this? or, or uh, Well, it's a gateway. It? It's a gateway. A lot of the girls that we've dealt with started that way and it progressed. And what I find, and it's interesting because the girls that I know that have said yes to the sugar daddy thing, if you drill down and go all the way back, it's the same little girl that had these other pathways begin. You know, something happened when she was young. She never told anybody. She kept a secret. And it's a little bit that bites away at her self-worth. My daughter just wrote an article on it at the New School in New York, and she interviewed a ton of girls, the ones that are doing the sugar daddy and the ones that said, I tried to, but I just couldn't when he started asking me for my financials and what I needed. There's something in a girl that makes her okay to cross that line and say, you know what, it's just a transaction. Because anytime sex turns into a transaction, something's definitely been stolen. I'm talking with Elizabeth Fisher. She's president and CEO of Sale of Freedom, and we're talking about sex trafficking victims in the United States. Sale of Freedom helps people pause, rest, and reflect and get back on their feet. You know, I think when a lot of people hear about trafficked women, they think they're being imported from somewhere else. And uh, we see lots of big, high-profile stories. There was mm-hmm. one gigantic Thai trafficking ring in the United States that had dozens and dozens of girls and apartments all over the place. What would you say is going on between domestic and international trafficking? Well, you know, it's a $32 billion a year industry globally. So I would say domestic and international. There's billions of money being spent and exchanged for both domestic girls and international. But what's interesting is that international has always gotten the headlines. And that's what we've heard about for so long. And we've had programs in America set up to help international victims of sex trafficking for years now. And they just passed another bill um, where the billions went to international sex trafficking. And I think what's harder to help people wrap their brain around is how much domestic sex trafficking there is. If there's, you know, well over half a million girls and boys sold every year that are just American born and raised, 
we have a lot of money and a lot of incidences happening in America, but we're just starting to have understanding for that. So I think it's been easier to focus on the international because it makes it feel like, oh, it's over there. But if we get into the stories that we talk about, it makes everybody more vulnerable. So is there a pathway if an international girl gets picked up, there's houses for her that are entirely different from Sailor Freedom? There's programs, yeah. Chicago has great programs for internationals, and they've been in place. And there's funding that's provided through the government for internationals. Absolutely. It's for the domestic that we've had to get creative. Uh, Why is that? And why is there no money? Is there some kind of... I I don't know. (laughs) Why is that? I don't know. I think because America is very good at not really taking a look at what's really happening here. You know, you'll hear towns all the time, oh, we really don't have homeless. Oh, we really don't have this. We really don't have sex trafficking. And it's epidemic. It's absolutely epidemic. And I think that's why, you know, when I mentioned in the beginning that we launched the Sail Away Foundation, the reason we launched that is to address the spectrum and to help America wake up to, we're all collaborating here, the partners that are fighting for this, because That little girl that could have had intervention over here when she was being abused at maybe seven, eight years old, or that teen that could have had curriculum in the schools to make sure that he heard it when he was 11, 12, or 13 and was raised how to be a man the right way and not buy a girl or treat a girl in this sense. Like there's so many points of intervention that America is so, I don't want to say, I mean, I love America, you know that. But what I'm saying is we're so conditioned in America to, oh, let's go help here and oh, let's look there. But We're missing what's happening in front of us. And it's not just in the impoverished communities. It's in all of our communities. Sex trafficking, sexual abuse is across, you know, the North Shore, the South Side, the West Loop. It's everywhere. It seems like your organization is growing so quickly and you've been able (laughs) to create a network uh, so quickly. Explain how large and what you've done with the Sail Away Foundation. Well, what we've found, because you're right, I mean, it's been six years, and all of a sudden we've established the best practices. But I think what happened was prior to that, there was everybody operating in silos. And now that we've been able to come into the different markets, and you see that each market has the same struggles, each market has a few key players. And if you connect all those key players, the donors and the supporters of this movement are looking for, like, what's going to move the needle and what's going to bring sustainable change to our nation and position us to be, like, leaders in this. We've now been invited to train law enforcement in New Zealand because they've just awakened. They've legalized prostitution. And now they're like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, we have kids being sold for sex in there and women against their will are being exploited. So we do need some help. So we're helping over there like we started over here in 2010. But the network is all the best of the best of the major cities saying we're better together. So here we have CASE and we have the Children's Advocacy Center. We're all locking arms, and then we have a couple in L.A., D.C., and we're coming together to lead the standards for the nation and to multiply it quicker together. You mentioned that there's usually a few key players that you have to get to know in Mm -hmm. the community to make it fly. Who are they? Well, here in Chicago, I mean, the two leading experts, the most highly credible You have CASE, which is the Chicago Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation. That's the group that's changed six laws in six years, and they've been all over legislating for women's rights and exploitation. And the Children's Advocacy Center, Chicago, every single sexual abuse case that happens within the city of Chicago comes through this one center. 
they're experts, but they didn't for a long time even have the ability to have any sex trafficking expertise because they were so busy and their funding was only for what they were doing. So now coming together, we're able to use our resources together, grow our prevention together, use my team to train their team, use their team to help our team. So we're putting it all together to make it more effective. And donors love that because they're like, oh, if I give here, I could help all of you guys make a bigger impact. So that's an example. Chicago is the leading city, so it's fun to work here. It's um, amazing. How are you getting your support? You've got donors strictly. I mean, can you get grants? Is this? We a- do. We get grants. We get state money, federal money, and private money. Yes. Hey, corporate. <laughs> we need more corporate money. Anyone out there? You petitioned for a house the last time you were here. Yeah. So we were gifted a home that's opening now June 30th. You want me to petition more? Or do you want me to tell you the <laughs> success? <laughs> <laughs> Either way, what do you, do you need another house? We, what you know you what? Everything we do is a two-house campus. So what we're looking for now is a house on five acres that we could put graduate houses on it. And I'm looking for things, you know, a little bit in the north part of the suburbs, something out in the northwest suburbs, something also. Chicago, we need campuses. We're going to need at least two more full campuses here. So anybody that has five acres, it could even be vacant. We have templatized our housing. We have modular housing now that's pre-made. We have a color palette. Bam. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) To quickly grow throughout the nation with everything to scale. Well, congratulations on everything you're doing. It sounds (laughs) terrific. Elizabeth Fisher is president and CEO of Sale of Freedom, and you can find them on the web at saleoffreedom.com. Thank you, Jerome, so much. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about a museum exhibit at the Museum of Contemporary Art. It features a Nigerian-born artist, Otobonga Nkanga, and the exhibit is to dig a hole that collapses again. It's really interesting about landscapes, natural resources, exploitation, and we'll talk with the artist tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. We'll also talk a bit about Puerto Rico. It's been seven months since the big hurricane, and there was a gigantic nationwide or countrywide power outage in Puerto Rico, and we hope you can join us for a conversation about what's been going on in Puerto Rico tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Gal Lee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Mike Gilmore engineered today. Daniel Musisi curates our music. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.